Thank you. Yeah, we can give it up for that word from God and give it up for the worship team. Thank you, worship team. That prophetic word was a gift, not just for us, but for me, because Chris, man, you got to know when you start singing songs about being adopted by God, I get a little weepy. <laughs> I get a little weepy. And just as, as she was sharing, I was thinking like, if you're familiar with our story, we adopted our son and my wife's got this rare degenerative condition. And so I'm praying for years, like, God, let's heal my wife, right? Praying for that miracle. And instead he gives us a miracle of our son from a nation of billions on the other side of the world comes into our family and we find out he has the exact same condition that Steph has. So she's able to look at our son and know when he's in pain. Like with their condition, their brain malformation, like the weather changes, they get migraines. She's able to know like, Raj probably has a migraine right now. She's able to look at him and sympathize with him in ways that, that other people couldn't. And it's such a miracle that he's in our family. And I share that because like Victoria was sharing, sometimes we think, man, our pain, our weakness, that should keep us from coming to God. But, but Hebrew says we have uh, our own miracle. It's that God took on flesh in Jesus and he can sympathize with our weakness. So whatever it is you're wrestling with tonight, let's offer it up to God as we were in worship. Let's continue as we dig into his word tonight. Don't hide your weakness tonight. And if I can, uh, before I jump in too, I want to plug what was in the verbal announcements, what we've been announcing, that next week we're doing baptisms. I'm going to be up there in the baptismal tank. So if you want to be baptized, grab Fred, Vanessa, myself, we, we would love to baptize you. We're a church that talks about next steps all the time. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ that needs to get baptized, that's your next step. Let's do it next week. But we are in our series, Shema. And if you got your Bibles, we're going to continue in it tonight. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 40, starting in verse 6. So you can turn there, swipe there, whatever you're doing. But this word Shema is the Greek word for listen. It's also the Greek word for obey. And what we've been looking at is listening and obeying in this word. It's two sides of the same coin. The idea is when you, you, you hear somebody in authority say something to you, obedience is assumed. It's the appropriate reflex. It's the desired reflex that we should have when we receive a word or hear from God. And as Pastor Vanessa shared so greatly last weekend, it's, it's the desire we have for our children as we raise them. And as I was, man, reflecting today, just getting ready to preach this sermon, I was thinking about how my wife, Stephanie, and our adoptive son, Raj, for years now, right? He didn't know English at first, so communication wasn't easy. But one thing he learned, we call him Raj. But when she says, Titus Shivraj, listen and obey. I mean, they're watching online right now. He probably just said, got nervous, right? He looked over his shoulder back at whatever screen they're watching on. Because she got it to a point where, like, when he heard the full name with listen and obey, it was like a, a switch flipped. He might not have been listening at all, but he's about to run in the street. She says that, oh, time out. So I started saying, hey, Titus Shavraj, listen and obey. I, I learned that he would, he would listen to that. And I'm realizing now, studying for this series, like, we've been training him to Shema all this, to listen and reflexively obey all this time, not really even knowing it. Now, is he there yet? Absolutely not. <laughs> Any parent, right, you, you want to raise your kid in that, but he's still a, a little knucklehead. I take him to a, can never remember, Sleepy Hole Park, other side of the water. It's off the Nansman River. And we, we hike out to this little inlet, and he can walk out like 50 yards, and it doesn't get any deeper than like his knees. So he's just out there 
sheer joy, like loving life. But every once in a while, he'll get far enough to where I'm like, hey, Raj, it's time to come back, right? Sometimes you got to hit him with the tightest shivraj, listen and obey. It's time to come back to dad. And sometimes it's reflexive. Sometimes he just hears me, starts running back in the water. Other times it's reluctant. I'm sure you've been there where you tell your kid to do something and they kind of look at you. You can tell the gears are turning. But then this week, right, he is so far out. I'm again and again, tightest shivraj. Listen and obey. It's time to come back. I'm wearing my shoes. I'm not trying to go out in this cold water. And he looks back at me, right? My son's like barely, you know, communicates. He looks back at me. He says, bye, and just keeps going. <laughs> that is rebellious, right? And, and Pastor Fred has shared the diagram, the, the three responses that we can have to a, a, a voice that's speaking to us. It's, it's reflexive. That's my desire for my heart with God. There's reluctant and then there's rebellious where like God's trying to get you to turn around. You're just like, bye, and you just keep going. I want the reflex of my heart to be one of obedience to God's word and his voice again and again in every area of my life. But the question I have to ask myself is one that Jesus posed frequently. Do I have ears to Shema, to hear and reflexively obey? Jesus capped off the greatest sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount with this principle of Shema. He says, anybody that hears who Shema's my teaching and follows it is wise. And he likens it to building a house on a sure foundation, on a rock, right? We know that that's the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. But even after we've started building our, our house and our life on that sure foundation, sometimes there are proverbial rooms and areas of our life and our heart where we are less than reflexive, where we're still clinging, where we need renovation and conversion, whether it's emotional or social or moral or intellectual, this series is about being reflexive to God in every room and every square foot of our lives. You know, two weeks ago, Pastor Fred introduced us to this Shema diagram where it lays out where this series is taking us. These five conversions of the heart handed to us by the theologian Donald Gelpie and his writings. And these five conversions, we're teaching them because they draw us into Shema. They close the gap between our listening and our obeying in every facet of our lives. And I feel like it's important to clarify because maybe it's confusing the use of the word conversions. Because I think sometimes we think about conversion as, as that moment of repentance that nothing needs to be added to. Right? Jesus paid it all, and when we repent and turn to him, we're justified before God. You don't got to add to that. In its definition, to convert, it means to turn. And I think, again, we often think of Repentance, rightfully so, correctly, as turning and doing a 180, whatever we were pursuing, sin, and turning to God in life. It's two-dimensional, like you're on a map or you're on MapQuest, and you got to turn around and do a U-turn. Again, that's repentance. That's justification. We don't have to add to that. But what I think we sometimes forget is that we're also called to sanctification. Right? Our call to look more like Jesus daily, and that's going to take a lifetime of what Gelpie calls ongoing conversions. It's ongoing turning, ongoing alignment in our lives to Christ's character that takes a lifetime. That's why I got this Rubik's Cube up here, because it is three-dimensional. and It was created by a professor of architecture trying to build a teaching tool for, for people to understand 3D objects and principles. Apparently, he didn't even build it as a toy. It wasn't until it was all jumbled that he was like, oh, this is actually a really good puzzle. And now, what, millions, billions of these things have been sold. And I'm no good at them. 
Apparently, if you jumble these up, as much as you jumble them up, somebody that's world-class, if that's even a thing, with a Rubik's Cube can solve it in 20 or less moves. That's not me. <laughs> but I share it. I share it because this is cheating, but there's five colors on a Rubik's Cube where to solve it, you have to bring them all into alignment, no matter how many turns it takes. And similarly, there are five conversions that we're to step into and areas we're supposed to turn in order to grow in this life and hopefully look more like Jesus in the process. And these conversions, they speak, again, to sanctification, our call to day by day grow more and more into the character of Christ. And that takes effort, takes work. It takes intentionality on our part. I mean, just look at what Paul writes in Philippians. After Philippians 2, where he gives us the beautiful picture, poetic picture of the work of Jesus on the cross, he, he says in the, in the next verses, he says, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. He says, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And then in chapter 3, he takes this picture of grace and he makes it personal. He says, I focus on this one thing. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Jesus Christ is calling us. But take note, each time the effort is secondary. Chapter two, you work hard to show what? The results of your salvation. Not work for it, right? That work was already finished at the cross. This is the fruit. This is what flows from it. And chapter three, he says, I press on to run the race. But he says just before that, that's what Jesus Christ laid a hold of him to run. Nowhere is Paul assigning human effort and hard work to salvation, and yet there's working hard. There's pressing on. And for many in the modern church with our modern ideas about grace, we say, chill, Paul, right? That's works righteousness, right? Jesus did all that already. And that's because we understand the gift of grace, but I, I don't think we often understand the grit of grace, the growth, the work, the pressing in and the pressing on. And how do we work? Again, Paul says in Philippians 2, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And that's why tonight we're starting with the ultimate, most crucial conversion, religious conversion. We start here because we need the Holy Spirit's power in our lives to desire to do what pleases God across all other areas, all other areas of growth and all other conversions. And religious conversion, it begins with making a vow of devotion to Jesus and confessing God's right to have authority over every aspect of my life. That's the definition we're going to return to, but I want to finally read from Psalm 40, this picture we're given that illustrates this idea. And it's in, again, verses 6 through 10 that I'm going to read. David is writing and he says, You, God, take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. Then I said, look, I have come. As is written about me in the scriptures, I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. I have told all your people about your justice. I have not been afraid to speak out as you, O Lord, well know. I have not kept the good news of your justice hidden in my heart. I have talked about your faithfulness and saving power. I have told everyone in the great assembly of your unfailing love and faithfulness. 
Come on, before I go any further, I want to pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for your unfailing love and faithfulness. We thank you that you've given us your word to, to look to, not just for inspiration, not just for revelation, but for impartation and authoritative direction in our lives. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use it to change us, transform us, and make us more like Jesus tonight. And everybody said, amen. You know, I remember meeting with a, a gentleman uh, from the Suffolk campus years ago. It's actually me and Anthony Hiltz. We met with him at a Starbucks. We were just talking about life, talking about church. And I remember he, he turns to us and he's like, man, that God really spoke to me during that sermon last week. And of course, right, my flesh rises up. I was like, all right, get ready to pat yourself on the back, stroke your ego a little bit. And it was funny because I don't remember what the passage was, but it was like, you were preaching from Matthew 13. And we opened our Bibles to read and I looked over at Matthew 11 and the Holy Spirit just started dropping this revelation uh, on, on and, and this guy might not have heard another word I said that entire service, but the Holy Spirit was using God's word to speak to him. And it reminded me of two things. One, why I try to get us all to open our Bibles and read together every weekend, because when you open your Bible, you never know what God's going to do. And the second thing is, is because, as it says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And let me tell you, as a preacher, that's encouraging to me because sometimes I get up here, I might not be on my A game. As a parent, I might be sleep deprived. Can I get an amen, right? <laughs> it, I might feel like I didn't even hit the mark, but I trust that God's word is living and active. So my goal when I preach isn't to, to have the best illustrations or, or the best alliteration of my points, even though those are useful, right, in, in, in people remembering and bridging context. But my end game, my goal is to open this up and let the word of God be living and active so it can, like a surgeon, cut to the heart of our issues. The word of God is living and active, meaning it speaks life to us, right? Imagine what would happen if we opened this every day. But maybe you say, time out, <laughs> Throw the flag. I, like you, try to read from my Bible every day. And if I'm honest, when I'm reading my Bible every morning, sometimes it doesn't feel living and active. Sometimes it feels, if I'm honest, more mundane than a, a living miracle. Sometimes it feels, if I'm honest, more dead than alive. You know, I've shared this quote from the theologian Scott Swain before when preaching on Scripture because it sounds cool. He says, Scripture is the supreme locus of God's self-communication in the world. So Christians are people of the book. We're people of the book. But being people of a book, right, such as printed words on paper like this Bible here, it's, both a, 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 it's got pros and cons. See, we have to remember that books as we know them are pretty new to human history. Right? And as we're in this series, Shema, based on the Greek word for hear, we have to remember that the Bible was long received audibly. It wasn't read. We can forget that for most of human history, books were rare, few people could read, scripture was rarely printed. So for countless generations, readings of the Bible, it was a community event where one person was speaking and, and many were listening. They weren't words on a page uh, digested through our sight, but through our hearing. It was an act of listening. And why do I share this? Well, what does it have to do with our relationship with God and Shema? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it. Because listening and reading are not one and the same. They're vastly different. Like listening is an interpersonal act. When I'm listening to somebody, 
I'm listening to somebody. They're in control when I'm reading. Sometimes it's just me, myself, and I. In another way, again, when I'm listening, that person is in charge. I'm listening to them. When I'm reading, I can do whatever I want with the book. I can skip a paragraph, turn 20 pages this way or that way. I can close it and go read it at Starbucks. See, when I read a book, I look down on it. But, but when I'm spoken to or taught, I sit under and, and receive that teaching. Fun fact, this is why churches often and, and in history have had uh, pulpits that are elevated. Because the idea is you're sitting under the word of God to receive it. See, when I open this book, though, this Bible, day to day, how often am I guilty of looking for information in the words? Or even like a transaction of revelation, which isn't a bad thing, but I'm seeking all these things over relationship with the God who spoke it through the Holy Spirit. I was ruined in this regard as an English major at William & Mary. My education at William & Mary was priceless, right? It was, it, was, it was a beautiful thing. It was part of my intellectual conversion, which I'll get to later. But as an English major, my junior and senior year, you're taking two or three uh, high-level English courses. And I'm also trying to be an art major and cover all these other bases, too, to graduate. And each one of these classes, you'd have to read a book, a novel, and write a paper on it. So you're in two or three, you're reading all of this and writing a paper on it every week. So I got really good at, at reading, <laughs> you could say, uh, proficiently, uh, attacking a book and, and finding the, the imagery and the analogies and the pictures that are woven throughout. I had dog-eared pages, circled stuff, written page this here, just all kinds of dissected. I learned to dissect a book and get information out of it. But you know what? Too often now, as a result, I often catch myself, I'll come to the Bible like that. Honestly, I'm coming at it almost like a cadaver that I can stand over and, and dissect and cut into. And you know, if, if, if I approach the Bible like a cadaver, it's probably going to feel dead. <laughs> but Hebrews 4, it says we're the body. And the Bible, through the work of the Holy Spirit, does the, the work of inspection and evaluation. And if, and if we allow it, healing, if, if we will place ourselves under it, as one would when spoken to by someone in authority. And what happens when we learn to Shema and listen again? It's conversions. The ongoing conversions that speak to sanctification. We see a Shema moment in the passage we just read in Psalm 40. In Psalm 40, verse 6, most translations like the one we just read say something like, you've given me an open ear or you've made me listen. It's a paraphrase that misses the picture in the Hebrew because the footnote of my Bible at home, I think it's the HCSB version, but there's a footnote where it says, you hollow out ears for me. And this gets to the Hebrew where the verb means to dig. Literally translated from the Hebrew, it's ears you have dug for me. The Hebrew speaks of digging, right? Like, like David's head was a, a block of unshaped clay in the hand of the potter and he had to dig out his ears. And it's the same word used in Genesis 26 when Isaac had to redig the wells of his father that had been filled by the Philistines. And I believe the enemy loves to fill our ears in much the same way. Hustle and bustle, <laughs> coming and going, no time to pause to the point where our hearing is reluctant at best. Or at worst, we think God isn't speaking at all because we don't have the, the time to listen. But God wants to open our ears <laughs> to dig them out so we can shema his voice again. And, and this is exactly the result we see with David. 
In verses seven and eight, after God digs his ears back out, the word becomes personal. Personal pronouns flood the text. He talks about your will, my God, your law, my heart. Again, reading can be impersonal, but listening is is interpersonal. God's word became about his life, and he put his life under the authoritative word of God. Remember, again, in reading, the the reader can take charge, but when, when you're listening, the speaker is in charge. We see the word doesn't just become personal for David. It becomes authoritative. He says, I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. Right? The renewed hearing sparked reflexive obedience. Shema. And what happens when this happens is life, deliverance, and conversion. Verses 9 and 10, David speaks of the good news of your justice and your faithfulness and saving power. And this powerful picture of transforming Shema that we get in Psalm 40, it's why Jesus would say again and again in the Gospels, whoever has ears, let them hear. Can you imagine, like, if you're a disciple, you're hearing that in the English, like, whoever has ears, let them hear. Like, whoever has eyes, let him see that I have ears to hear whatever you're saying. But the word Jesus uses for here is Shema. And while everyone in the crowd had ears to listen, Jesus doesn't assume that everybody will Shema and reflexively obey. I mean, you look at the, the, the religious leaders and so many other people were listening to his every utterance to stand over it and dissect it and to see if it lined up with their own teachings and worldviews and then they would take it or leave it. How often are we guilty of this in our culture with the word of God? But those with an ear to Shema, they would posture and position themselves under his teaching and receive it as authoritative, giving him authority over every aspect of their lives. This is religious conversion, which begins by making a vow of devotion to Jesus and confessing God's right to have authority over every aspect of our lives. And this isn't just transactional. It's not just authority handing down orders and commands. No, it's like we sang again and again tonight. It's, It's like a father and their child. It's God-initiated relationship with us that's graciously made possible through Jesus Christ. Religious conversion, in a way, it's me taking personal spiritual responsibility for my end of the relationship that God has already initiated. And we step into this through a vow of devotion. But get this, because this is, again, what we so often miss in our culture, in the church. In conversion, we don't just turn from sin and into some freedom where there is no authority and there's nothing over us. There's no restrictions For example, when God is telling Moses to go to Pharaoh and get his people out of Egypt and slavery, it was so that they could go into the wilderness and what? Worship him. That word in Hebrew means serve, like a servant would their master. See, God's plan, it wasn't just to get his people out of slavery and into freedom. Otherwise, Exodus would have ended at the Red Sea like all our Moses movies do, right? There's 25 more chapters because he wanted to get them to Sinai where they would learn to Worship him as Lord and Savior. Exodus is is a story about a transfer of power from a miserable master to an infinitely good one. Maybe it's one reason why God met them at a mountain like Sinai to reveal himself because the posture that we're supposed to have, this picture we have is we're to look up to him and place our lives under his revelation. See, making a vow of devotion to follow God means placing your life under the revelation of God. We've received that in his word, and we've received that in Jesus Christ. But what does that conversion look like lived out? right, let's get practical for the rest of tonight. I want to look at two things. I want to look at the life I know best, my life, and then I want to look at the life of a young man in Scripture that also 
encounters Jesus, the rich young ruler. But first, my own life. And I want to look at this principle of when versus weather. See, in the New Testament, when Jesus speaks of religious conversion in his famous conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, he speaks of being born again. And he speaks of the Holy Spirit giving birth to spiritual life. And he compares being born again in the Holy Spirit to the wind. See, your conversion experience may be a gentle breeze on the cool of day, a tender experience as we faithfully and reflexively receive Jesus at his word. Or the conversion experience may be a tornado of wind that turns the terrain of your life upside down. That's my testimony because I met Jesus at 21. And at 21, I had already built so many habits and, and perspectives and just patterns in my life that needed to be blown away. And as a result, I can point to October 10th of 2005 as the night my life changed. And I encountered Jesus' grace and I made a vow of devotion to, to God. But for some people, they can't look back on a spiritual birthday, if you want to call it that. Uh, one moment of deliberate commitment. They can't remember any time where they didn't love and trust Jesus as Savior. And I felt the impulse to share this as I was praying this week because as a pastor, I've had conversations with people where they can't remember the day and all of a sudden they have a lack of assurance. Not being able to point to a moment. And what I've told them as a pastor is much more important than when you experience conversion is whether you've experienced conversion. Like if you've ever been awake hiking or on the beach or just outside during the sunrise, you look back Sometimes it's impossible to say, oh, that's when the day started, right? That's the moment that day started. It might be similar when you walk with God, but what ultimately matters is that you're living in the light and not darkness, that you're following him in relationship with him. Whenever you kicked off your journey with Jesus, what's most important is your following. I don't know who that was for, but somebody needed to hear it. But then also, religious conversion is not always first, but it's foremost. Religious conversion is key and crucial, and foremost above all, because the rest of our conversions will fall short without it. Again, Paul says in Philippians 2, it is the power of the Holy Spirit in us that enables us to do God's will fully in every arena of life. Yet religious conversion, it's not always first and foremost because it doesn't always come first. As we work through this series, it'll become apparent, but just in my life, or, or when somebody comes to Christ maybe late in life, in their golden years, no doubt they've had some of these other seasons of growth and conversion. What do I mean? Well, again, I came to God at 21, a senior at William & Mary. And I would say I had experienced an intellectual conversion. Man, all these classes at this academic boot camp from sociology to philosophy and religion, they had taught me to take responsibility to test my own thoughts, perspectives, and worldview with opposing viewpoints and information. But before my religious conversion... I would say that my intellectual one was limited and even hampered. How can I say that? Because at 21, my religious conversion infused my intellectual one with faith. Some people act like faith runs counter to or cancels out intellect and, and logic or a, a sound thought process. But I simply submitted my logic to theology, right? Theo means God. Theology is not illogical. It simply adds God and his word to the equation to the thought process. Billy Graham once said, faith isn't anti-intellectual. 
Faith involves a very logical premise that is trusting that God's superior ability is able to save us. And I would say, too, that when I met Christ, I'd already stepped into my sociopolitical conversion. Look, in college, my roommates were black. And they weren't just my roommates, they were my friends. I mean, one of them went on to be my best man in my wedding. So we spent time together. And if we were turning off Madden and they had to go to an African-American male coalition meeting, guess where I went? To an African-American male coalition meeting. Every day we'd eat lunch in the Office of Multicultural Affairs, which was adjacent to where students that were studying abroad lived. So I didn't just graduate from William and Mary with a bachelor's. <laughs> I graduated from thinking that my limited perspective was the perspective, which is sometimes easy when you're a white male in a, in a, a white dominant culture. I graduated from the limited history I'd learned up to that point. I graduated from the passive, unreflective acceptance of systems as just being the way things are. No, if it affected somebody I love, like a brother and sister, then I'm not going to sit on my hands. But again, this conversion was limited and hampered without Jesus. In Christ, my sociopolitical conversion was infused with meaning in reconciliation. Right? I've said it before. I'll probably say it again a million times that until we have vertical reconciliation with God, right, this horizontal reconciliation we seek, man to man, man to woman, uh, race to race, creed to creed, it's going to prove elusive until we get vertical reconciliation with God, right? That's the meaning that my religious conversion gave my sociopolitical one. But other conversions came after my religious conversion. My moral conversion came after my religious conversion. Certainly as a male, maybe this isn't rare. My effective conversion probably came last, right? <laughs> Grappling with your emotions, taking responsibility for your emotions and your emotional healing. But what was foremost and infused them all with transcendent meaning was my religious conversion at 21. My encounter with Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Religious conversion infuses and fills all the other conversions with, with greater life and meaning. Again, your intellectual conversion gets, gets infused with faith. Your sociopolitical conversion gets this gift of reconciliation. Your, your moral conversion, you, you've got love, not just any love, but God's love as your model. And then your effective conversion, your emotions are infused with hope. But these, all these conversions will be taught in coming weeks. Back to the religious conversion, enough about my example. I want to Wrap up, finish by looking at another young adult who encountered Jesus. You know, it's said of St. Anthony that when he heard, just in passing, he was in a service, he heard a, a reading of Matthew. Again, he was listening to this reading of Matthew where Jesus told the rich young ruler, if you want to be perfect, go and sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. And it said that Anthony, who himself was a wealthy young man, he immediately heard these words, was convicted, and immediately went and sold everything he had. And he became one of the earliest desert fathers and one of the first monks in Christianity. You talk about a Shema moment, a reflexive moment of reflexive obedience, no reluctance, no rebellion. And what contrast we have to the rich young ruler himself, who in a moment of reluctance upon hearing the same words of Jesus, walked away. Basically, Paul Raj and said, bye, right? Chose rebellion. And we see his story in Matthew 19, if you're taking notes. He comes to Jesus. He wants assurance of salvation, which is not a bad thing. God is a good father who wants us to have assurance of his love, just like I want Raj to have assurance of, his of my love. He's a good father. And the young man's greeting is, hey, good teacher. By all appearances, when you read this, 
He's a man who had an intellectual conversion. He's looking to engage with and wrestle with Jesus's teachings. And Jesus begins his reply to this question, what must I do to be saved by listing five commandments? He says, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. He speaks to the five that pertain to loving our neighbor, but not directly love of God, right? The good moral person could do all of these things and yet live separated from God. So the man replies, all these I've kept. So it seems that this man had even experienced a moral conversion. He built the disciplines that allowed him to keep these commands. It's not easy, but we're all called to religious conversion, living under the authority of God and Jesus Christ. So Jesus zooms into what was at the center of his life and on the throne of his heart. And for this young man, it was wealth. For many of us, it might be something different. But for this young man, it was his wealth. See, the rich young ruler's question was, have I crossed the boundary to where I've punched the ticket and the transaction has been made and I've got assurance of salvation? Have I crossed the boundary? Jesus' question is, am I at the center? See, the rich young ruler was operating from what psychologists call it a bounded set, that there's a boundary to cross, and once you step over it, you're in. At that point, progress is optional. You punched your ticket, you're good. But Jesus wants to be the center of your life that you never stop working toward. You know, I had a sobering conversation years and years ago with a, a college student who I'd known since he was in middle school. He had gone to college and he was like, man, I know I haven't been doing the right things. He's like, I don't, he was basically like, I don't plan on stopping. But I had that, that one moment at the altar where I, I, I prayed a prayer so I'm, I'm good, right? And I had to explain to him, we too often think of religious conversion as limited to a moment at an altar. A moment of transaction rather than the beginning of a relationship. God sees it as a relationship that, much like our marriages, right, begins at the altar. Imagine if you got married, you turn to your spouse like, well, I'm done investing in the relationship, right? That's doomed from the start. Our religious conversion is a journey we go on for the rest of our lives where Jesus is at the center like a doctor who had to prescribe a radical surgery of life change for the good of the patient, this rich young ruler needed a radical transformation, a transplant at the center of his life and at the center of his heart. The problem is, which we so often see, is, is he wanted to hold on to the scalpel. <laughs> he wanted to stand over Jesus' teaching rather than sit under his authority and change. He couldn't let go. Only a religious conversion, positioning myself under the loving care of God changes me from the inside out. You know, if I could have the, the worship team come up, Jesus didn't just address the Ten Commandments with the rich young ruler. He did it at the Sermon on the Mount, which we referenced at the beginning of tonight. And he says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, basically says, you won't cut it. And here's the thing, right? We like to, we learn in Sunday school to boo the Pharisees, like they're bad guys, but man, they cherished God's law, right? They, they wanted to be faithful, to the point where they made 613 extra commandments. Like, how do we do better than that? You asking us to make more? I struggle to, to remember the Ten Commandments, right? But elsewhere, Jesus also rebukes the Pharisees for cleaning the outside, but leaving the inside of their lives filthy. Jesus' point is that law is going to seek to change us from the outside in, but it never truly gets to the heart. For our righteousness to exceed theirs, we need God to restore us from the center, inside out. 
And that kind of heart renovation, that kind of heart healing takes Shema. Standing under the teachings of Jesus and the word of God and receiving it in obedience. We have to be willing to let him take the scalpel and do heart surgery on us. It takes religious conversion, which again begins with making a vow of devotion to God and confessing Jesus' right to have authority over every aspect of my life. Again, to come full circle, the Rubik's Cube, I didn't know until this week, is named after a guy named Rubik. <laughs> I, always thought, I always thought it was R-U-B-I-X, but it's, no, it's Rubik's, like possessive. This guy made this. But he wasn't the first to, to make a model. There was some other guy whose name isn't remembered because he tried to make one, and the way he designed it and tried to patent it was with a magnet at the middle, and it would fall apart. So his, his plans fell apart, and it was Rubik who cashed in. <laughs> and the reason this took off is because at the center is a piece that can hold it together. Right, in life, again, we're, we're comparing this to those conversions. You, you can have all, you can have your intellectual conversion, your moral conversion, your socio-political conversion, but if God isn't at the center, what's at the center is crucial and it won't be held together. It won't hold up. Again, Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount and says, anyone who hears, who shamas my teaching and follows it is wise. And he likens it to building a house on a solid foundation, a house that will stand the test of time through every storm. And that cornerstone is taken care of, right? We have the sure foundation. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My life is built on nothing less. But I'm still called to build. I'm still called to work hard, still called to press on, to lean into sanctification and grow to look more like Jesus and his character. I'm called to give God all the rooms of my life, not just the ones I choose, in reflexive obedience. So, if we could go back into worship tonight, I want to encourage you as we do so, that as we worship, you know, Chris encouraged us earlier, man, raise your hands. Right? That's not only just a, a, a picture of surrender, but man, let it be a picture of just saying to God, if you've been clinging to a room, <laughs> you've been clinging to an area in life where you know you, God's calling you to let go. Let that be a symbol of you letting go. Let that be a symbol, right? As you look up and raise your hands that you've placed God over you in a place of lordship. And if you've never done that before, man, we're going to have an opportunity to pray. We're going to have an opportunity to pray because Paul didn't just say all that other stuff. He said, man, the day of salvation is today. Today is the day of salvation. So let's worship and praise Jesus who initiates this relationship so we can step into this vow of devotion and follow him and his love for all our days. God, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we, as we've been singing from the start of tonight, you're our father that sent your son so that we could all be sons and daughters. And Jesus, we praise you for the sacrifice you, you gave on the cross, your life, so that no veil, no weakness, no, no nothing can hold us back from your love, your grace, and your mercy. So we worship you tonight. God, even in this time of worship, we lift our hands as just a symbol of we are offering up all of our hearts. We're not clinging, God, anymore to those places. You want to do heart surgery and, and take your word and, and do work. So Holy Spirit, I pray as we sing, you will continue to, to, to convict, encourage. God, bring life as only you can through your word and the word that was just preached. In Jesus' name, let's worship. Let's stand.